Section 30 of Dangerous Connections. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dangerous Connections by Pierre Coderlo de la Clos. Section 30, letters 146 to 150. Letter the 146th, the Marquise de Merteuil to the Chevalier d'Ancenis at last i am leaving my young friend and to-morrow evening i shall be back again in paris in the midst of all the confusion which a change of residence involves i shall receive no one however if you have some very pressing confidence to make me i am quite willing to accept you from the general rule i beg you therefore to keep the secret of my arrival valmont even will not be informed of it had any one told me a short time ago that soon you would have my exclusive confidence, I should not have believed it. But yours has attracted mine. I am tempted to believe that you have brought some skill to this end, perhaps even some seduction. That would be very wrong, to say the least. For the rest, it would not be dangerous now. You have really other and better occupations. When the heroine is on the scene, there is little notice taken of the confidant. Indeed, you have not even found time to acquaint me of your new successes. When your Cecile was absent, the days were not long enough to hear your tender complaints. You would have made them to the echoes if I had not been there to hear them. Since then, when she was ill, you honoured me again with the recital of your anxieties. You wanted someone to whom to tell them. But now that she whom you love is in Paris, that she is recovered, and, above all, that you sometimes see her, she is all sufficing, and your friends see no more of you. I do not blame you, it is the fault of your twenty years. From Alcibiades down to yourself, do we not know that young people are unacquainted with friendship, save in their sorrows? Happiness sometimes makes them indiscreet, but never confiding. I am ready to say with Socrates, I love my friends to come to me when they are unhappy. Note, Marmontel, Conte Moral d'Alcibiade But in his quality of a philosopher, he could dispense with them when they did not come. In that I show less wisdom than he, and I felt your silence with all a woman's weakness. Do not, however, think me exacting. I am far from being that. The same sentiment which makes me notice these privations enables me to support them with courage when they are the proof, or the cause, of my friend's happiness. I do not count on you, therefore, for tomorrow evening, save in so far as love may leave you free and disengaged, and I forbid you to make the least sacrifice for me. Adieu, Chevalier. It will be a real festival to see you again. Will you come? At the Chateau de... 29th of November, 17... Letter the 147th Madame de Volanges to Madame de Rosemonde I am sure you will be as grieved as I am, my worthy friend, to learn of the condition in which Madame de Tourvel lies. She has been ill since yesterday. Her disorder appeared so suddenly, and exhibits such grave symptoms, 
that I am really alarmed. A burning fever, a violent and almost constant delirium, an unquenchable thirst, that is all that can be remarked. The doctors say they can make no diagnosis as yet, and the treatment will be all the more difficult, because the patient refuses every kind of remedy with such obstinacy that it was necessary to hold her down by force to bleed her, and the same course had to be followed on two other occasions to tie up her bandage, which in her delirium she persists in tearing off. You who have seen her, as I have, so fragile, timid, and quiet, cannot conceive that four persons are barely enough to hold her, and at the slightest expostulation she flies into indescribable fury. For my part, I am afraid it is something worse than delirium, and that she is really gone out of her mind. What increases my fear on this subject is a thing which occurred the day before yesterday. Upon that day she arrived about eleven o'clock in the forenoon, with her waiting-maid, at the convent of. As she was educated in that house, and had continued the habit of sometimes visiting it, she was received as usual, and seemed to every one calm and in good health. About two hours later, she inquired if the room she had occupied as a schoolgirl was vacant, and, on being answered in the affirmative, she asked to go and see it. The prioress accompanied her with some other nuns. It was then that she declared that she had come back to take her abode in that room, which, said she, she ought never to have left, and which, she added, she would never leave until her death. Those were her words. At first they knew not what to say, but when their first astonishment was over, it was represented to her that her position as a married woman prevented them from receiving her without a special permission. Neither this, nor a thousand other reasons, made any impression. And from that moment she obstinately refused not only to leave the convent, but even her room. At last, weary of the discussion, they consented, at seven o'clock in the evening, that she should pass the night there. Her carriage and servants were dismissed, and they awaited the next day to come to some decision. I am assured that, all through the evening, her air and bearing, far from being wild, were composed and deliberate. Only that she fell four or five times into a reverie so deep that they could not rouse her from it by speaking to her, and that, each time before she issued from it, she carried her two hands to her brow, which she seemed to clasp vigorously, upon which one of the nuns who were with her, having asked her if her head pained her, she gazed at her a long time before replying, and said at last, The hurt is not there. A moment later she asked to be left alone, and begged that no further question should be put to her. Every one retired except her waiting-maid, who was fortunately obliged to sleep in the same chamber, for lack of other room. According to this girl's account, her mistress was pretty quiet until eleven o'clock. She then expressed a wish to go to bed, but, before she was quite undressed, she began to walk up and down her chamber, with much action and frequent gestures. Julie, who had been a witness of what had passed during the day, dared say not to her, and waited in silence for nearly an hour. At length Madame de Tourvel called to her twice in quick succession. She had but the time to run up when her mistress fell into her arms, saying, I am exhausted. 
she let herself be led to bed and would not take anything nor allow any help to be sent for she merely had some water placed near her and ordered julie to lie down the girl declares that she remained awake until two in the morning and that during that time she heard neither a movement nor a complaint but she says that she was awakened at five o'clock by the talk of her mistress who was speaking in a loud and high voice and that having inquired if she needed anything and obtaining no reply she took the light and went to the bed of madame de tourvel who did not recognize her but suddenly interrupting her incoherent remarks cried out excitedly leave me alone leave me in the darkness it is the darkness that becomes me i remarked yesterday myself that she often repeats this phrase at length julie profited by this kind of order to go out and seek other assistance but madame de tourvel refused it with the fury and delirium which she has displayed so often since the confusion into which these threw the whole convent induced the prioress to send for me at seven o'clock yesterday morning it was not yet daylight i hastened there at once when my name was announced to madame de tourvel she appeared to recover her consciousness and replied oh yes let her come in but when i reached her bed she looked fixedly at me took my hand excitedly gripped it and said in a loud but gloomy voice i am dying because i did not believe you immediately afterwards hiding her eyes she returned to her most frequent remark leave me alone etc and lost all consciousness this phrase and some others which fell from her in her delirium make me fear lest this cruel affliction may have a cause which is crueler still but let us respect the secrets of our friend and be content to pity her misfortune the whole of yesterday was equally tempestuous and was divided between fits of alarming delirium and moments of lethargic depression the only ones when she takes or gives any rest i did not leave her bedside until nine o'clock in the evening and i shall return to it this morning to pass the day there i will certainly not abandon my unfortunate friend but the heart-rending part of it is her obstinacy in refusing all attention and succour i send you the bulletin of last night which i have just received and which as you will see is anything but consoling i will be careful to forward them all to you punctually adieu my respected friend i am going back to the patient my daughter who is fortunately almost recovered sends you her respects paris twenty ninth of november seventeen hundred letter the hundred and forty eighth the chevalier d'ancenis to the marquise de merteuil o you whom i love o thou whom i adore o you who have commenced my happiness o thou who hast crowned it compassionate friend tender mistress why must the recollection of thy sorrow come to trouble the charm which i undergo ah madame be calm this friendship which implores you o my friend be happy tis the prayer of love nay what reproaches have you to make to yourself believe me you are misled by your delicacy the regrets it causes you the injuries of which it accuses me are equally imaginary and my heart feels that between us two there has been no other seducer but love 
Dread no longer, then, to yield to the sentiments you inspire, to let yourself be penetrated by all the fires you yourself have kindled. What, would our hearts be less pure if they had been later illuminated? Doubtless, no. Tis seduction, on the contrary, which, acting never except by plan, can regulate its progress and its methods, and, from a distance, foresee events. But true love does not thus permit itself to meditate and reflect. It distracts us from our thoughts by our sentiments. Its sway is never stronger than when it is unknown, and it is in shadow and silence that it entangles us in bonds, which it is alike impossible to notice or to break. Thus, as late as yesterday, in spite of the lively emotion which the idea of your return caused me, in spite of the extreme pleasure I felt at seeing you, I nevertheless thought myself to be called and guided still by calm friendship only, or rather, abandoned wholly to the soft sentiments of my heart, I was very little concerned to unravel their origin or their cause. Like myself, my tender friend, you experienced, unconsciously, that imperious charm which handed over our souls to the sweet impressions of affection, and neither of us recognized love until we had issued from the intoxication in which the god had plunged us. But that very fact justifies, instead of condemning us, no, you have not been false to friendship, and I have not abused your confidence. It is true, we were both ignorant of our feelings, but we only underwent this illusion. We did not seek to give birth to it. Far from complaining of it, let us only think of the happiness it has procured us, and, without troubling it with unjust reproaches, let us only be concerned to enhance it by the charm of constancy and security, Oh, my friend, how my heart dotes on this hope. Yes, freed henceforward from every fear and given over wholly to love, you will participate in my desires, my transports, the delirium of my senses, the intoxication of my soul, and every moment of our fortunate days shall be marked by a new enjoyment. Adieu, thou whom I adore, I shall see thee this evening, but shall I find thee alone? I dare not hope it. Nay, you do not desire it as much as I do. Paris, 1st of December, in 17... Letter the 149th, Madame de Volange to Madame de Rosemonde. I had hoped yesterday, almost all day, my revered friend, to be able to give you more favourable news this morning as to the health of our dear invalid. But this hope has been destroyed since last evening, and I am only left with the regret that I have lost it. An event, seemingly of scant importance, but cruel in the result it caused, has rendered the condition of our invalid at least as grievous as it was before, if, indeed, it has not made it worse. I should have understood no whit of this sudden change had I not received yesterday the complete confidence of our unhappy friend. As she did not conceal from me that you were also acquainted with all her misfortunes, I can speak to you, without reserve, of her sad situation. Yesterday morning, when I reached the convent, I was informed that the invalid had been asleep for the last three hours, and her slumber was so calm and deep that I was afraid for a moment that it was lethargic. Shortly afterwards she awoke and herself drew back the curtains of her bed. She gazed at us all with an air of surprise, and when I rose to go to her, she recognized me, spoke my name, and begged me to draw near. She left me no time to question her, 
but asked me where she was, what we were doing there, if she was sick, and why she was not at home. I thought at first that it was a new delirium, only of a more tranquil kind than the last, but I perceived that she fully understood my answers. In fact, she had recovered her reason, but not her memory. She questioned me very minutely as to all that had happened to her since she had been at the convent, with her she did not remember coming. I answered her correctly, only suppressing what might have given her too much alarm, and when I asked her, in my turn, how she felt, she replied that she was not in pain at that moment, but that she had suffered greatly in her sleep and felt tired. I persuaded her to be quiet and to talk little, after which I partly closed her curtains, leaving them half open, and sat down by her bed. At the same time some broth was suggested, which she took and found good. She remained thus for about half an hour, during which time her only words were to thank me for the attention I had given her, and she brought to these thanks that grace and charm which you know. She then maintained for some time an absolute silence, which she only broke to say, Ah, oh, yes, I remember coming here. And a moment later she cried pitifully, My friend, my friend, pity me! My misery is all coming back to me. Then, as I advanced towards her, she seized my hand, and resting her head upon it, Dear God, she went on, can I not die then? Her expression, more than these words even, moved me to tears. She perceived them in my voice, and said to me, You pity me, ha, <laughs> did you but know? And then, interrupting herself, arrange that we can be left alone, and I will tell you all. As I believe I have informed you, I had my suspicions already as to what was to be the subject of this confidence, and, fearing that the conversation, which I foresaw would be long and sorrowful, might perhaps be harmful to the condition of our unhappy friend, I refused at first, under the pretext that she required rest, but she insisted, and I yielded to her instances. We were no sooner alone than she told me all that you have already heard from her, which, for that reason, I will not repeat to you. Finally, while speaking of the cruel fashion in which she had been sacrificed, she added, I felt very certain it would be my death, and I had the courage for it. But what is impossible to me is to survive my misfortune and my shame. I tried to vanquish this discouragement, or rather this despair, with the arms of religion, which, hitherto, had such power over her, but I soon perceived that I had not strength enough for these august functions, and I confined myself to a proposal to call in the Père Anselme, whom I knew to be entirely in her confidence. She agreed to this, and even seemed to desire it greatly. He was sent for and came at once. He stayed for a long time with the patient, and said, on leaving, that, if the physicians judged as he did, he thought the ceremony of the sacraments might be deferred, that he would return on the following day. It was about three o'clock in the afternoon, and until five our friend was fairly quiet, so much so that we had all regained hope. Unfortunately, a letter was brought up to her. When they would have given it her, she answered first that she would not receive any, and no one pressed it. But from that moment she showed great agitation. Shortly afterwards she asked whence this letter came. It had no postmark. Who had brought it? No one knew. From whom had it been sent? The portress had not been told. She then kept silence for some time, 
after which she began to speak, but her wandering talk only told us that she was again delirious. However, there was another quiet interval, until at last she requested that the letter which had been brought should be given her. As soon as she had cast her eyes on it, she cried, "'From him! Good God!' and then, in a strong but oppressed voice, "'Take it back! Take it back!' She had her bed-curtains shut immediately, and forbade anybody to come near her. But we were almost immediately compelled to return to her side. The frenzy had returned more violent than ever, and really terrible convulsions were joined to it. These attacks had not ceased by the evening, and this morning's bulletin informs me that the night has not been less stormy. In short, her state is such that I am astonished she has not already succumbed, and I will not hide from you that I have very little hope left. I suppose this unfortunate letter was from M. de Valmont, but what can he still dare write to her? Forgive me, my dear friend, I refrain from all reflection, but it is cruel, indeed, to see a woman make so wretched an end, who was hitherto so deservedly happy. Paris, 2nd of December, 1700 Letter of the hundred and fiftieth, the Chevalier d'Anceny to the Marquise de Merteuil. While I wait for the happiness of seeing you, I abandon myself, my tender friend, to the pleasure of writing to you, and it is by occupying myself with you that I dispel my regret for your absence. To retrace my sentiments for you, to recall your own, is a real delight to my heart, and it is thus that even a time of privation offers me still a thousand benefits precious to my love. However, if I am to believe you, I shall obtain no reply from you. This very letter is to be the last, and we must refrain from a correspondence which, according to you, is dangerous, and of which we have no need. Assuredly, I will believe you, if you insist. For what can you wish that does not become my own wish, for that very reason? But, before being wholly resolved, will you not permit me to discuss the matter with you? Of the question of danger, you must be the sole judge. I can calculate nothing, and I confine myself to begging you to watch over your safety, for I can have no peace while you are uneasy. For this purpose, it is not we two who are but one, but you who are both of us. It is not the same with our wants. Here we can have but one thought, and if our opinion differs, it is perhaps only for lack of explanation or for misunderstanding. This then, methinks, is what I feel. No doubt a letter seems by no means indispensable when one can see each other freely. What could it say that a word, a glance, or even silence would not say a hundred times better still? This seems to me so true that, at the moment when you spoke of our ceasing to correspond, the idea easily crept into my soul. It troubled it, perhaps, but did not wound it. It is even, as it were, when, wishing to press a kiss upon your bosom, I meet with a ribbon or a veil, I do but thrust it aside and have no feeling of an obstacle. But since then we are separated, and now that you are no longer here, this thought of our correspondence has come back to torture me. Why, say I to myself, this privation the more? Nay, is it a reason, because one is far away, that one should have no more to say? I will assume that, favoured by circumstance, we pass a whole day together. Must we waste the time in talking which is meant for pleasure? Yes, for pleasure, my tender friend, for by your side even the moments of repose are full of a delicious enjoyment. 
but at last, however long the time may be, one ends by separation, and then one is all alone. It is then that a letter is precious. If one reads it not, at least one gazes at it. Ah, do not doubt. One may look at a letter without reading it, as, methinks, I should still find some pleasure in touching your portrait in the night. Your portrait, do I say? But a letter is the portrait of the soul. It has not, like a cold resemblance, that stagnation which is so remote from love. It lends itself to our every movement. By turns it is animated, feels enjoyment, is in repose. All your sentiments are so precious to me. Will you rob me of a means of cherishing them? Are you sure, pray, that the need to write to me will never torment you? In solitude, if your heart expands or is depressed, if a movement of joy thrills through your soul, if an involuntary sadness for a moment troubles it, where will you depose your gladness or your sorrow except upon the bosom of your friend? Will you, then, have a sentiment which he does not share? Will you allow yourself to be lost in solitary dreams apart? My love, my tender love, but it is your privilege to pronounce sentence. I did but wish to discuss, and not to beguile you. I do but give you reasons. I dare believe that my prayers had been of more avail. If you persist, therefore, I will endeavour not to grieve. I will make an effort to tell myself what you would have written to me. But ah, you would say it better than I, and, above all, I should have more pleasure in hearing it. Adieu, my charming friend. The hour is drawing nigh when I shall be able to see you. I take leave of you in all haste that I may come and find you the sooner. Paris, 3rd of December, in 17... End of section 30